Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks. Hello, David and Matt, and welcome to our midweek tennis podcast, which might ordinarily be a roundup of the bits and bobs we've seen in this sort of day and a half since we last recorded a tennis podcast. Uh, and we will be doing a roundup of the bits and bobs during the week on Monday. Don't you worry. I know that lots of stuff's happened. I'm sure lots of stuff will happen over the coming days, and we'll be covering all of it. Don't worry. But today's episode is the first of our two French Open relived editions for 2021. I know what you're thinking. You relived pretty much everything there was to relive of the French Open in 2020 when it didn't happen or when you thought it didn't happen, but actually it had just been postponed and you ended up doing two whole French Opens worth of daily podcasts. And (laughs) Dave has got a massive gleeful grin on his face at the mere mention of that. But there is plenty more to cover. And today's podcast, David and Matt, I think Matt should probably get the first word on this, will be dedicated to Suzanne Longlan, about whom Matt has been learning immense amounts and uh, imparting that onto us over the past few days. She, um, well, after reading through all the research that you've done, Matt, my response to the group was... I'm going to have to name my next dog Suzanne. And I'm telling you, there is no greater tribute I can pay to anyone than that. <laughs> that message really did make me laugh. Yeah, Billie Jean has has, has got a rival and uh, Suzanne Longland is that person. Yeah, I mean, look, we like to tell stories with Tennis Relived and I think that makes Suzanne Longland a great choice for Tennis Relived because there are so many stories about her, her just remarkable life that she led. Um, And also because, quite frankly, I'm not sure there's anyone we could have spoken to who would remember Suzanne Longlem. We're going back 100 years here. So I felt to do it justice, we had to go deep with the research because that was the only way we could really get a, a handle on her life. And I've gone deep and looking forward to talking about it yeah I, I thought I thought this would be an interesting process and an interesting show to do and I wanted to find out more about it I could not have imagined 
how I felt this morning when reading through everything you prepared. Um, I, I was sending you reactions to people who were asleep because I was reading it between <laughs> six and seven in the morning, and uh, and I was just overwhelmed really it's it's fantastic i hope you agree when listening to us uh, go through it um but it's it's been an absolute joy to to find out more about this incredible woman and person and character within the sport of tennis mm. we're um we're going to be talking about who she was i think a lot of people out there might just know the name from the stadium we'll come on to that in just a moment um and i Personally, I think it's entirely forgivable or at least understandable if that's that's all you know of her. Um, it's a story that and this includes us up until this point and we're trying we're trying desperately to rectify it. But it's a story that is not told enough. Not even fragments of her story are are told enough in the tennis world. Um, so, yeah, very understandable if if you don't know much about. Suzanne Longland will be yeah we'll be talking about who she was why she was an important figure and still is an important figure as well as of course her incredible tennis achievements and the major events in her career Matt has as you can imagine done very very thorough research on this and as he said we've not really been able to speak to to many people about about Suzanne Longland we're only going to hear from one it's Billie Jean King um, but yeah, we haven't spoken to anyone that had ever met her. She she died 83 years ago, tragically, um, at 39 years of age. So we have been very reliant on sources, incredible sources. And because we've been so reliant, I think we should cite them up front and give them the credit uh, that they deserve. And also just signpost to you, if you're listening to any of this today and thinking, wow, I'd love to know more. Um, then these would be the places to go. We've got The Goddess and the American Girl by Larry Engelman, Love Game by Elizabeth Wilson, Suzanne Longland, Tennis Idol of the Twenties by Alan Little, A People's History of Tennis by David Berry, and multiple articles uh, from the Sports Illustrated Vault. But I think we should start off just setting the scene with what we knew about Suzanne Longland before this a a full disclosure hands up what did we know I'll, I'll go first i i knew that the suzanne longland court <laughs> was named after suzanne longland and beyond that i knew what was written on her statue outside that court um i knew she was a, a multiple french open champion in the 1920s i knew that she also won wimbledon um, and I could I could draw you a, a very rough picture of what she looked like again based on that statue, and that is pretty much where my knowledge ended. I'm very very embarrassed to say. Yeah, I, I would say I probably knew less than you, Catherine. Uh, and uh, in terms of my starting point was the stadium naming, and I think it just shows how important stadium naming is. And, and how much impact it can have as a as a, a jumping off point to get to know people who are important historically within the sport. And we talked a lot about that with Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson. If if you want to go back and listen to the Tennis Relive shows we did on them. Um, and from there, yes, I, I, I knew of, of some of her achievements. I knew about some of her fashion importance um, and athleticism and, uh, and, and sort of grace and, and and guile around a tennis court I, I sort of heard about that 
but I knew nothing of what we're about to do discover in this show. Yeah, I was the same. The stadium was my starting point. Um, I, th I think I'd looked at her career a little bit. I knew that she'd won a lot. I knew that she was very famous and I knew that she sort of transcended tennis. Um, I think I remember hearing or speaking to someone once who told me something like a visit to the south of France without an audience with Suzanne Longlen was the equivalent of a visit to the Vatican without an audience with the Pope, just to kind of give an indication of how popular she was. And then I'd seen some pictures of her and of her playing with both feet off the ground. And I think I had her in my mind as someone who was perhaps first talked about as someone who played tennis for something more than just tennis. It was some sort of artistic endeavor with her. But beyond that, I didn't have a great grasp of what her actual achievements in tennis were. And I certainly didn't know the numerous amazing stories that her life that her life entailed. Well, obviously, thank goodness that second stadium, a Roland Garros, is named after Suzanne Longlin. But here is Billie Jean King to tell you what she thinks about the naming of that stadium. She is the one. Philip Chatrier was very important to our sport, uh, especially with the Olympics coming back. Um, we owe him a lot, but I still think she should be on that court. I think he should have where Langland is, is where he should have, what Philip Chatrier should have. That's what I think on that. But I just think she was such a superstar in our sport, period. How can you ever put her on the second court? I don't, I don't know. I don't get that. You know what, Billie Jean, I don't get it either. I mean, I do get it because, you know, the patriarchy. But um, it makes no sense at all. And where the genders are right, look, you, I'm not disrespecting Philippe Chatrier. It's, it's, it's great that, that his, it's not really his, he was a professional tennis player, wasn't he? But he's, he's being honoured as a long-time president of the, the French Tennis Federation. I think 20 years his reign spanned, which, you know, that's a great thing. But swap those genders around, make the woman the administrator with the, to use David's term, middling <laughs> tennis career um, and make make the man the one with her set of career achievements and boundary breaking. I think we all know who the main stadium would be named after. So, yeah, it's not going to change, is it? Because you, you can't strip um you can't change it now, I don't think. It would be too much of a diss to Philippe Chatrier who doesn't who doesn't deserve that. But um it's a great shame that there isn't a number one stadium of any of the Grand Slams named after a female player. Um, especially as she's probably the most deserving. Um the most obviously deserving um at any of the grand slams but yeah that's that's a wonderful starting off point from from billy jean king describing her as tennis's first superstar and when she said that to us the other day i sort of made a a mental note in my mind to to pay close attention in the research to kind of how how much she is known and famous for her achievements, her tennis achievements, and how much it is about the other stuff we know, the fame that went with her, the kind of the scene, the boundary breaking that she did on the on women's outfits and all of that kind of thing. And then I'm scanning through the research and I see that, and you know, we know this from the Esther Vigier interview, I love a streak. 
<laughs> I I love a streak so much. I'm really captivated by streaks. And I know she went on a number of them in her career. But Suzanne Longlin won 179 consecutive singles matches. And I know she did loads of other things as well. But <laughs> But... And I know I should be sort of more fixated on the fact that she completely paved the way for um, breaking down barriers about what women could be as athletes and what they were allowed to be. And that's all wonderful. But she also won 179 consecutive singles matches. And that's just bonkers. Yeah, yeah. From the beginning of her 1922 to her retirement from amateur tennis. I mean, it's, you know, that was some four years later. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. Um, Her amateur career actually spans 10 seasons on either side of the First World War. It began in 1913-14. She was 15 years of age. And uh, and then the the World War One took place, lasted four years, uh, of course. And, and then she resumed her career um, and just absolutely dominated. I mean, Alan Little, in his book, calculates that she, she won a total of 250 titles in her time, a combination of 83 in singles, 74 in doubles, 93 in mixed doubles. Um, and, I mean, Matt, Matt uses the word her, her adult career because that's what what it became. I mean, look at the years she actually ended up missing. I mean, she lo- she sort of missed the the years of fifteen to nineteen because of of, of the war, and then resumed, and uh, and she was beaten between nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty six seven year period. She was beaten just once in singles, and that was by retirement. She conceded just three sets. I mean, what? <laughs> and and. Uh, I mean, this is sort of Roland Garros relived. We we know that, but really, it's it's Wimbledon where she was the biggest name in terms of though that's where her achievements really stood out. She won six singles titles, five in a row. That record stood until Martina Navratilova finally managed to win her sixth consecutive championship in 1987. So you're talking 63 years, Longland held that record um and she once won Wimbledon in 1925 losing just five games in the entire tournament (laughs) I had to to look that up to to see was that the challenge round and actually the challenge round had been done away with by that point the challenge round being that you, you win the year before and suddenly you're in the final for the next year without having to play any of the other rounds and no that tournament she played the whole thing and lost just five games um, the French Open back then was called the, the French National Championships and, and only had players from France. But in 1925, it did expand. And that's that's when it became a Grand Slam, a major. And uh, Longlin won the Triple Crown, singles, doubles and mixed, which I, I feel as though is not a, a thing that we refer to in the current day because players just don't even enter all three tournaments. I mean, we, we've we've seen how Billie Jean King has, has done that in the past, but it's not a thing that's talked about these days. And just to, to quote Engelman, he said, it's important to keep in mind that the record she set, Longlen, might have been even more incredible if she'd been more ambitious, but she abandoned amateur tennis. So as extraordinary as her records are, 
they represent also a lack of obsession with record-breaking. I mean, not only is she achieving all this, she's cool enough not even to be obsessed with it. <laughs> it's, it's things like that which are such a useful reminder of what a different time this was. Because now it feels like, okay, we're obsessed with record-breaking, but I think everyone is pretty obsessed with record-breaking. Um, and those those stats there about how much doubles she played. You know, doubles was just as important to her as singles, I think, is important to remember as we talk about her career. And as you said, this was a time where the challenge round was around for the start of her career and then abolished halfway through it. So she probably would have won even more matches if the challenge challenge round wasn't wasn't there at the start of her career. So extraordinary records, but records that also need to be kept within the context of of the period as well. They could have been even even more incredible, as Engelman says. Mm. She um she, she grabbed people's attention, didn't she? It's so clear that she just she grabbed people. She commanded attention in a way that no no sports sportswoman from any field had even come close to in the past. We're talking about, you know, her career spanned the introduction of universal suffrage for for women in the UK. That was 1918, wasn't it? I think in in the US that came in, um, I think the first presidential election was uh, 1920. Uh, when women when women were able to to vote, you know, we're talking right on the crest of that wave. Um, but that's just women being able to vote. This is a woman kind of being the primary and most visible figure for athletics and sport in the world, which I didn't realise was possible back in the the 1920s. Yeah, because how could you spread the word is, is what I kept thinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they had these things called newspapers, yeah. David, I think. <laughs> yeah, They were actually printed on paper and everything. Um, she, We've got two stories here that kind of demonstrate her popularity and her importance in the zeitgeist around that time. Number one, her presence is one of the main reasons why Wimbledon moved from Warple Road, where it was previously held, to the current location on Church Road. That happened in 1922. And it was down to the the demand to see her. Um, and Matt's, but, and to a lesser extent, Bill Tilden. <laughs> <laughs> when we do Bill Tilden Relived, we'll, uh, we'll give him his dues. Um, but from everything I've read, it's largely down to the demand to see Suzanne Longland. Imagine We're talking about... That. You know, the the climbing trees and peering through fences, you know, all the classic scenes of people just desperately trying to to catch a glimpse of her. They they physically needed a larger sight. Can you imagine, imagine the meeting? It'd be like Jaws. Oh, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the second one, and don't get too excited, David, I love this one even more. And maybe it's because I've got a very, such a rudimentary and basic appreciation of sort of 1920s history. And of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is The Great Gatsby. Um, It's one of my favourite books. And I think of Prohibition, um, which is something that's so often sort of glamorised, isn't it, in literature and film. Um, But how about this? Suzanne Longley, and it was when I read this that I decided my next canine (laughs) would be called Suzanne. Maybe Susie. I'm not sure about a dog called Suzanne. Susie. Anyway, I'll finesse it at a later date. Um, 
Suzanne Longlin used to drink alcohol during her matches, either wine or cognac. This is what she said about it. Quote, Nothing is so fine for the nerves, for the strength, for the morale. A little wine tones up the system just right. One cannot always be serious. There must be some sparkle too. I'm going to get that tattooed on my <laughs> bum. I think you should call your next dog Longland. <laughs> um, do you think it, it, John McEnroe's You Cannot Be Serious was actually just a remarkable um, nod to the beautiful history of tennis and that Suzanne Longland quote? <laughs> Deserves One to cannot be. always be serious. Amazing. Um, Cognac. And... And okay, so so then by extension of all of that, Engelman wrote um, in his book that the USLTA, which is now the USTA, went out of their way to attract Longlin to America. He noted that they, quote, conspired to violate the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which is the prohibition laws, in order to provide her with contraband wine and cognac, <laughs> which she said she needed in order to play tennis properly. <laughs> Never before or since have such respected individuals conspired to break the law just to guarantee the appearance of an amateur athlete in a tournament. I mean... I, I love that fact, factoid. It's not a stat, is it? Trivia. I love that bit of trivia, I think, as much as I've ever loved any piece of tennis relived <laughs> trivia. It's the best. It's awesome. So that's kind of that's kind of your overview of what she did, who she was. Um, but we're going to take you right back to the start because I can tell your your appetites are whetted. You're thinking, tell me more. Let's deep dive on Suzanne Longlen. And here's Matt to tell you about the early years. So she was born the 24th of May, 1899, in the Passy district of Paris, which is quite a wealthy area in, in the 16th arrondissement, which actually is where Roland Garros is located these days. Um, her father was called Charles, and he was very influential in terms of shaping her as a tennis player. A lot more, a lot more on him in a moment. And her mother was Anaïs, and she is described by Ted Tingling as having an acute astigmatism, which meant that, quote, both eyes looked outward in opposite directions, saving her the need to turn her head when following Suzanne's shots during the million hours she spent clucking over her daughter from the sidelines, <laughs> which is just an amazing image. Um, the family had a small holiday home in the south of France where they spent their winters. This is very significant because it was when they were there that Charles, the father, really noticed how popular tennis was and how the tennis players in that region enjoyed quite a privileged place in society. And there was a whole Riviera circuit during the early 20th century and lots of tournaments. It was a, it was a real happy hunting ground for tennis players in those days. And the Longland family had this villa that was opposite Nice Lawn Tennis Club. And they used to go there. And at the same time, a young Suzanne was displaying lots of natural talent for sports, swimming, cycling, horse riding, Diablo, I think, in particular. What, what's Diablo? Diablo is that thing where... Oh, a, yeah. Something a bit like, a, is a bit like an egg cup shape is yeah. 
sort of thrown in the air bet- by two strings. I think in those days it was a sport. Okay. <laughs> it's like calling yo-yoing a sport, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. Anyway. Anyway, she was great at it. And, <laughs> um, and she had, it sounds like she really loved to perform it, which I think is important. You know, people would come and watch her do that in the streets in Nice. <laughs> this was before cinema, wasn't it? So... <laughs> Next best thing. Watching people do (laughs) yo-yo. Incidentally, I read about her athletic prowess, and this definitely is athletic. I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but in 1919, Longlin was the the high jump champion among French women with a leap of four feet six inches, which was just four inches shy of the world record for women at the time. And she could jump over a tennis net from a standing position with her feet together. I mean, could you imagine if I had a go at that? <laughs> I mean, how has she done that? So that's just a nice indication of how, I think, talented she was. And her her father picked up on that. And the story goes that she was given a, a tennis racket, aged 11, displayed this talent and... It was at this point where the father, Charles, really put his efforts into turning Suzanne into a tennis player. One of the things about Suzanne Longlen is that she's a completely singular, one-of-a-kind figure. And yet, in her story, there are these little elements which set the tone, actually, for tennis careers to come in terms of celebrity and in terms of, in this case, her father, and he was he was probably the first what we would call tennis father who really imposed his ambition onto her. He started by getting special dispensation for Suzanne to become a member of that tennis club in Nice. Children weren't normally allowed, but they saw her talent. They let her play on Thursdays and Sundays when she wasn't at school. She studied classic Greek dancing at school and many believed enabled her to acquire the agility and that sort of performance artistic rhythm to her tennis that that she would display so many times. Um, But David Berry notes in his book that came out last year that viewed in today's lights, Charles Longland's methods were quite clearly abusive. He would get Suzanne to practice just a single stroke for hour after hour and he would lay down a handkerchief on the court and she would have to hit it over and over. Once she'd hit that, he, he would reduce the size of the handkerchief by folding it over and then it would become a coin. Over and over, he would sort of treat her if she got it right or withhold treats if she didn't if she didn't do it well, you know, kind of like a dog or a, or a seal was, was kind of what I read in terms of how, how he trained her. And Engelman also picked up on this, saying that love, the offering of it when she did well and the withholding of it when she didn't, became the whipped Charles snapped. When she failed, she failed Mama and Papa and didn't deserve their love. Charles never seemed to be really aware of the pulverising emotional effects of his methods. His critical, unforgiving eye followed her every move, missing no mistake. And while Suzanne's tennis skills flowed, Emotional growth was stunted. She became athletically formidable and emotionally tattered. It was ironic that long after Suzanne was almost universally acknowledged as the avatar of tennis perfection, she still lacked normal self-confidence. 
She remained morbidly afraid of failure. And for Suzanne, there was but one escape from the rigid, exhausting routine and the endless ridicule, and that was a flight into illness. Engelman writes that early in her career, she learned of the temporary respite to be gained over Mama and Papa through sickness or collapse. And only when she was clearly ailing did she receive rewards of sweet parental affection. As a result, Suzanne, from a very early age, suffered poor health. And that's important to note now because Longland's health will become a very important feature of her career. She withdrew from many matches, including the only singles she lost as an amateur after the war, which we'll hear about. Um, But that all stemmed from her childhood and what she went through with her father. Um, So despite this, perhaps even because of it, she became a great tennis player. She made enormous progress very quickly. She was a national sensation while she was a teenager. There are stories of her turning up at tournaments with her mum and the secretary signing them in would think that the mum was the one playing. But it was actually Suzanne. She was just so ahead of everyone else. Um, She won the World Hard Court Championships in 1914, aged just 15. That was a very big deal. But her father, again, this controlling influence, decided that it was too soon for her to play Wimbledon. And soon after, World War I began. So that's why she didn't play Wimbledon until 1919. But it was during the war where she really developed her game, practised it in the Riviera. There were lots of tennis players, as I said. And she really developed as a player during the First World War. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. And I mentioned that four-year period until she was 19 when the war 
took place. And what I didn't really know was that when it concluded that sport was bigger than ever. And Engelman wrote at that point that she, Longland, was a, a, a focal point for all its enthusiasm. He, he said that she undoubtedly benefited from the new interest in sports and nurtured it by demonstrating her unique athletic talents. And in 1919, the world was ready for her. And in The Nation, the writer Ida Treat um, discussed the athletic renaissance and, um, and wrote that the nations have not lost their war psychology. They've carried it over into their sports. And some writers concluded that sport had become literally the extension of war athletically. Sport today, it quotes, is as national as war is, and it is even more chauvinistic. And tennis being such an international sport and and with its clash of personalities its heroism of of individual battle projected a kind of glamour that was missing from other sports so players were almost like film stars and and they could have their personalities put up against one another and hugely appealing and and i think relatable for everybody who who just experienced the war and in france after the all the brutality and humiliation of, of the Great War. The, the country needed a symbol of national pride, and that's what Longlin became. But in the context of all of that, how how extraordinary is it that it, it was a woman that became that? I mean, it it kind of makes no sense that it was a woman in the context of all of that backdrop, that line about what a what a chauvinistic time it was for the world because of kind of how... How, oh, how chauvinistic war is by nature, I suppose. I mean, that's perhaps not the right word, but I'm I'm deriving it from from that quote about sport today is as national as war is, and it's even more chauvinistic. Um, I suppose in tandem with that, you've got the role of women changing in the world. I mentioned earlier it was it was 1918 um, in in the UK that women achieved uh, suffrage and shortly after in the United States and similar time in France. But it still would have been just completely inconceivable for women to become the first international sports celebrity. It was controversial, them even being present on a tennis court. Elizabeth Wilson wrote the following, many people and not just men felt it was not respectable for women to be seen playing actively in public at all. Women violated their own femininity in making violent movements and seeming to perspire or be out of breath was unthinkable and even indecent. So strongly was femininity equated with passivity. This convention that prevented young women from any vigorous display of movement was one of the most inhibiting factors for female players. There was also the question of fashionable dress and and it goes on to quote Lottie Dodd here she she said in exasperation how could women ever hope to play a sound game when their dresses impede the free movement of every limb in many cases their very breathing is rendered difficult um, and Charlotte Cooper Sterry who was a, a female champion from from the same era articulated the very thing about women playing tennis that annoyed the the many male correspondents to the field magazine who had written in to complain about the very idea of women playing. Um, Charlotte Cooper-Sterry said, I'm sure that the tournaments would not possess half their present attractions if men alone competed. 
And she wrote that in 1903. Ladies, she added, must ensure that they go on court looking their best as all eyes are on them. It was precisely to this, of course, that the male opponents objected. They did not want their wives and daughters subjected to male gaze. Um, Finding it impossible to exclude women entirely, the tennis authorities sort of relented a little and attempted to impose separate rules upon them, suggesting that women might be allowed to hit the ball after it had bounced twice, might serve from the middle of the court um, or refuse any service they missed. Um, But by the turn of the 20th century, women kind of had won the day. Herbert Chip, the first secretary of the LTA, conceded that times had changed. Um, He was, I should say, he was no great feminist Um, But he said the Lawn Tennis Association must claim a large share of responsibility for the introduction of this new regime. Um, He recognised that the new generation of women could, quote, not be worse mothers because instead of leading sedentary lives, a greater proportion of their young years have been spent on the tennis lawn. Uh, So he's very much still looking at it in terms of how how good uh, their activities would make them as mothers. So... Yeah, it's not feminist central, but it's <laughs> it's it's progress uh, for the time. So by the time uh, Longlin played her first Wimbledon in 1919, things had improved slightly for women, um, and the war had obviously moved things along more quickly than they probably otherwise might have. Um, and the conditions just happened to be right for for her to become an international star. But I still find it even in spite of all of that, so unlikely yeah. that, that it would have been a woman. Um, yeah, it, it just intrigues me. And, and, it, and it just makes me wish that I could have seen her play mm. to sort of know. It, it sounds like it must have been something that was just magnetic, that you just saw in her, a charisma, a magnetism that made people like that, all the people we're quoting, set aside all their chauvinism and just want to watch her play tennis. It's extraordinary. I mean, if you think of certain players today, particularly young players, and we sometimes reference, oh, imagine, how, how did they kind of handle this occasion, this moment, all these eyes on them, all these people thinking, talking about them? Well, imagine what it was like for her, the difference between her and everybody else in the eyes of of people watching. I mean, Longlin was, was 20, I think, when she played her first Wimbledon in, in 1919, first one at Warple Road. And and spectators are turn, being turned away at the gate because they want to come and watch her. That's how much interest there was. I mean, they ended up having to move the thing in a, a, a few years later just in, in order to, um, to, to manage to get uh, enough people in to be able to see her. And... Uh, when she made her debut, um, she won it 6-love, six 6-1, six went all the way to the challenge round and played a 40-year-old. So here you've got a player who's literally twice her age, a seven-time champion in Dorothy Chambers. And Longlin was serving overarm and Chambers was, was not. I mean, she's serving, she's doing a Kyrgios every single point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, the the final was was delayed by rain and when it got underway 8,000 spectators King George V Queen Mary Princess Mary all in attendance people queuing for hours and hours to get in and as they waited for the match to get underway they sung an old war song which was adapted for the occasion the song was called it's a long long trail a winding but that was adapted you sing it then 
there was a moment where I thought he was. It was. If only I knew how. <laughs> um, and it... I thought, oh my god, he's googled it. He's found. He's found a rendition. He's he's learnt the tune. It's happening. It was adapted to. It's a long glen trail, a winding, which I think is beautiful, isn't it? And and she won that final ten eight four six nine seven, saved two match points. The first with the wood of her racket. So she won it with a shank. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and uh, the 44 games they played was a, was a record. I mean, long old final, isn't it? That stood until 1970 when Margaret Court and Billie Jean King played 46 games. And yet I get the impression from reading about it that it was what she was wearing, that that, that Wimbledon and that title is most remembered for and particularly the contrast of Longlin's outfit with her opponent Dorothea Chambers um the matchup was already cast as youth versus age new versus old post-war versus pre-war so to have them both walk out onto court with outfits that completely encapsulated that kind of just confirmed the the narrative i suppose longlin was wearing a flimsy and and check out how risque this sounds folks <laughs> she was wearing a flimsy white calf length length short-sleeved tennis frock with the skirt pleated white stockings and a soft linen hat <laughs> nothing gets pulses racing like a white stocking Outrageous. i have found uh, a white stocking and a soft linen hat. That milkshake brings the boys to the yard. Uh, Chambers chose more traditional attire in the form of a white gourd skirt reaching just below the calf. And that was worn with a plain long-sleeved shirt buttoned at the wrists. Uh, Elizabeth Wilson wrote, Longland's costume was startlingly brief for the time. It was described as indecent in parts of the press. I'll repeat, white stockings and a soft linen hat. Uh, Described as indecent in parts of the press. Yet it was hailed as a revolutionary change in tennis dress for women. Wearing what she did sent a message about social change and about women's emancipation, about a different future in which fun would trump duty. That's another tattoo for a... (laughs) <laughs> for, for, a, for a, I'll, I'll assign a body part at a later date. Um, Larry Engelman pointed out that in 1920 at Wimbledon and beyond, Longlin was even more daring with her dress. Uh, so this is in future years. He says she made a liberating quantum leap in fashion and demonstrated for the first time her passion for appearances. She now had her own couturier, Jean Patou. And he had new ideas about women's fashion and women's sport. In place of the hat she had worn for protection from the sun previously, Suzanne wore a bandeau of two yards of bright silk fastened in front by a large diamond pin. In place of the long cotton skirt she wore in 1919, she now wore a short pleated silk skirt, very much like that of a ballet dancer. The length, it fell just below her knees, was shockingly short for the times. Um... I said that exactly like uh, my old headmistress used to tell tell me and my friends that our skirts were shockingly short. Uh, and they weren't just below the knee. Uh, <laughs> um, her clothes were not merely stylish. They were also functional. She was now much freer in her movement. Now she could display the style and the fluency that would, in the future, distinguish the genuine royalty of the court. Which is just a wonderful line. 
Um, Teddy Tingling, of course, the very, very famous tennis dress fashion designer. Um, he recalled years later, years after Longland's 1919 triumph at Wimbledon, he said that Dorothea Chambers had confided to him that she had considered the outcome of the match to be a tragedy. Obviously for her, since it snatched from her the chance of an eighth championships, that's um, Dorothea Chambers, that is. But she said it was a tragedy even more seriously for Suzanne Longland because it gave her, quote, the taste of invincibility and a subsequent compulsion for it, which brought endless sacrifices and unnatural happiness out of all proportion to the rewards of her fame. It sounds like a sort of, you know, that sounds so modern era, doesn't it, to be talking about fame of those kind of proportions, that sort of fame that distorts everything about you, distorts your sense of reality. It, You know, we I think we think of that as a kind of modern affliction, a, a kind of tabloid, maybe even a social media-y type thing. So to think of that, that being the case in the 1920s is... Mm. is extraordinary yeah that massive contrast between something that we can't possibly relate to and yet there are elements of it that are thoroughly relatable to the present Mm. day yeah that's one of the things which makes it so interesting to look back on this career i don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there was probably a time where she was certainly the most famous woman in the world you know beyond sport from everything i've read suzanne longlem was the woman Everyone wanted to know everything about her life. Um, And we get to the early 1920s and she's conquered tennis in Europe. She's winning everything on that Riviera circuit I talked about. She's won Wimbledon. Sort of the next thing for her to do is to go to the United States. And she'd been receiving invitations for a while, which she 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 turned down. She said, I won't go unless you provide me with cognac. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> That's going to be your answer to various questions, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Going to have to up our sort of snacks game for the podcast now. <laughs> Twiglets and cognac, please. Yeah, Thanks okay. very much. <laughs> so she declined these invitations. One of the reasons was because her father wouldn't make the trip. He was he was a very, very bad sailor and she she didn't want to go without him perhaps he wouldn't not on the boat perhaps he wouldn't let her go either um but eventually 1921 she gets an invitation to play some exhibition matches to raise money for relief work that's still being carried out to help the regions of France that have been devastated by the war so she goes to America but it's it's an ill-fated trip from the start. She, I mentioned earlier about her poor health. She has an attack of bronchitis, which delays her departure by a few weeks. And she doesn't leave until August the 6th, when she was supposed to leave on about July the 20th, something like that. Doesn't arrive until the 13th of August. And while she was in America, she, she was going to play the U.S., championships at Forest Hills as well as these exhibition matches but that was due to start just two days after she arrived in America. She'd been seasick on the journey, Um, there were reports that she played some tennis on the deck on a court specially rigged for her but obviously that wasn't the ideal preparation for the the US Nationals 
And when she got there, she, she asked for her opening match to be postponed. That was a request which was granted. But the draw in those days was unseeded. Oh, yes, please. This is what you two are both <laughs> after. Unseeded draw. Suzanne Longlin is in, the, is, in the, is in the same quarter as all the leading American players. Um, but she gets a walkover <laughs> in her first match <laughs> because one of those players, Eleanor Goss, is ill. But there's this huge crowd in America who've come to see Suzanne Longlin. She doesn't want to let them down. So she agrees to play another American, Moller Mallory, in the afternoon. Great name. I tell you, it's an era of great names. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine during the warm-up. But Longlen notices that Mallory's game has improved since they last played. And when they get going, Longlen's shots, they don't quite have the same pop as usual. And she's down love two, love 40, which is, you know, unheard of. She, she sometimes wins matches without losing so many games. And it's at this point that Longlen starts coughing. This briefly distracts Mallory and the match goes back on serve. But then Mallory gets it straight and wins the first set 6-2. Start of the second set, Longlen loses the opening point and double faults. Again, a double fault from Longlen was virtually unheard of. And it's at this point that she walks over to the umpire. She's sobbing and she announces that she can't breathe and won't be able to play. She's retiring from the match. First match she'll have lost since the war. The crowd, Al Laney reports, didn't particularly like this from, from Longlin. There's a faint but distinct hissing, he says. And the retirement was not well received by fans or journalists. The feeling was that she'd given up because she thought she couldn't win. Um, they coined this phrase, cough and quit. And it became, I think, popular in American sports parlance, you know, at the time to describe someone who needed, needed an excuse to avoid losing, cough and quit. There was a lot of debate over this, a lot of controversy. On the one hand, Suzanne Longlen had talked about her ill health prior to the match. We know she was ill on, on the trip over. But in typical Longlen style, she was seen dancing later that night after losing to Moller Mallory, which just further propagated this idea that she was faking an illness. And the French Tennis Federation accepted that Longlen was ill, but the vice president didn't. And he had accompanied Longlen on the trip, but he believed that Longlen was feigning illness and he resigned from the French Tennis Federation over this incident, saying, quote, she knows how to win, but she doesn't know how to lose gracefully. And this was very much a judgment that was shared by the American public. So what was supposed to be this incredible trip was cut short. Not enough money was raised. She didn't play those exhibition matches. She came home. Um, now, I think, again, it's important to talk about what I said right at the start about her upbringing. We know that illness was Longland's escape when the, when the strain became too much. And I think it's very possible that the mental toll she was feeling sort of influenced her physically. And certainly that was kind of Ted Tingling's take. He said, some say the tremendous exertions and the constant invincibility demanded of her by her father eventually reduced her to a frail, nervous wreck. Others think that the early repressions by both her parents, who felt any normal life might impair her performance, were the real cause of her decline. 
she seemed to spend her whole life on her toes, unable ever to relax. So, you know, she's just this contradiction. She's she's so famous, she's so brilliant, and yet just beneath the surface there's this real vulnerability about her. Um, and Gosh. and it all came out in that match against Mola Mallory at Forest Hills, 1921, the, the only loss she would take in her amateur tennis career after the war. And she couldn't let that lie because, I mean, mm. at, this, <laughs> at this point, you know, she's suddenly had her reputation tarnished. I mean, people are questioning whether she is really the world champion if she's been beaten. Um, so she had to have a rematch. <laughs> and she got one at Wimbledon. Uh, they met in the Wimbledon final in 1922, and Longland set the record straight. People queue in from dawn uh, on Saturday the 8th of July. I, I'm, I'm struggling to believe this is right, but apparently they started at 7.01pm and finished at 7.26pm. That's a 25-minute <laughs> match. Is that right? What, she, Suzanne would be the woman to cope well with the, um, the COVID... Uh, curfew countdown clock, wouldn't yeah. she? <laughs> Get it done. Get it done. Engelman had written that Moller scared Suzanne because she no longer believed in the invincibility of the goddess, as she was known. Well, the goddess has just beaten her in 25 minutes, 6-2-6 <laughs> six, six, love. Uh, her concentration never wavered. She won nine games in a row to close the match out. And as they shook hands, Longland said, Mrs Mallory, I have proved to you today what I could have done in New York last year, <laughs> which has to be one of the all-time quotes. Um, I know it would be very abstract, but I would like that tattooed about my person as well. <laughs> Mrs. Mallory. Oh, so good. Uh, they met um, one final time in January of 1923, and Longland followed it up with a six-love, six-love drubbing, losing only 18 points as she showed her superiority. So don't beat Suzanne Longlen is the moral of this tale. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all just so great, isn't it? It's, yeah. Tennis aggro three. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne Longlen versus Mola Mallory. Um, yeah, so... What do, what do great players need? They need a rival. Yes. And Mola Mal- Mallory might have briefly thought it was her um, before, before she was put back in her box. Um, but by the mid-1920s, uh, while Longlin was the queen of the European tennis scene, uh, a certain young woman by the name of Helen Wills had emerged as the biggest female star in US tennis, at the age of 20, Wills had led her country to victory in the Whiteman Cup. And a fortnight later, she had won the US singles crown for the third straight year. And that's at the age of 20. She had proved herself at home and was keen to tackle Europe. Um, and she wanted, in particular, to pitch her skills against Suzanne Longland, which was still considered the ultimate test in tennis. She announced that she would play the Riviera Circuit in 1926. Can't imagine why. That sounds awful, doesn't it? The Riviera Circuit. Um, and that was kind of perceived as her throwing down the gauntlet to Suzanne Longland, perhaps perhaps without realising the extent to which that would plunge her into celebrity because of... You know, she was 
entering Longland's vortex, I suppose. It was the media event of the year. It was front page, banner headline news throughout the Western world. Uh, sports writer Grantland Rice was there. New York cartoonist James Thurber was there. The eminent Spanish novelist Blasco Ibanez. How have I done there, Matt? Very good. Thank you. Um, he was there and he had never seen a tennis match before. <laughs> it was just the event that you had to be at, had to be seen at. Um, according to Engelman, an American newspaper chain deposited $1,500 into a Nice bank account to be paid to Suzanne Longen after the match for her to write a 1,500-word report on her impressions on the confrontation. That sum of $1,500 was more than President Theodore Roosevelt had received for providing a magazine with an account of his lion-hunting safari. Um. There was this huge build-up to their eventual meeting um, because it was it was a tour um, and both of them kept entering different events and avoiding each other on this tour. They didn't eventually meet until Tuesday the 16th of February in the final event of, of the tour at the Carlton Club in Cannes. I mean, it honestly sounds like it's scripted, doesn't it? It's, it's just ridiculous. Um, journalist John Tunis described it as a tawdry little excuse for a tennis club. <laughs> Um, and the facilities were generally deemed to be inadequate for an event of this magnitude. The match was scheduled for 11.15am, which was considered the best time to avoid the awkward shadows. Uh, Madrid. Take note. Take note. Um, all around the club, pandemonium prevailed. Hundreds of people had been standing in line all night waiting to get in. A line of people four deep stretched across down the street around the corner and out of sight. People rented ladders and leaned them against the fence, climbed on top of trees, stuck their heads out of roofs just to catch a glimpse of the match. Um, It created an atmosphere, they said, that shocked tennis traditionalists. Engelman wrote the Carlton Club had become a besieged sports bastille under assault by an army of energetic and determined fans. Ticket prices had risen by extortionate amounts. They were 22 times the cost of Bill Tilden versus Bill Johnston, who were the most popular American men at Forest Hills. There were distinguished guests, film stars, Grand Dukes, the Duke of Westminster, journalists with typewriters on their knees. Um, be a pay-per-view occasion today, wouldn't it? Oh, I hope not. No, it would be a it would be a BB it would be a crown jewel that had to be on terrestrial TV. That's what it would be. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, so, Wills had a power game. She felt that her aggression could shatter Longlin's defence, but in the end, her lack of variety was her undoing. Longlin, in particular, had the backhand down the line, which Wills did not possess. I read lots of quotes that. Suzanne Longland was very fond of her backhand down the line. She would she would point it out whenever she could that that was a shot that she had that no one else had. <laughs> I love that. I love, <laughs> I love that she's mentioning it. None of this let my tennis do the talking stuff. I'll also do some actual talking about it. Um, Engelman said, Wills played as well as she had ever played and she hit as hard as she had ever hit and she still lost. Longland won 6-3, 8-6, no tie breaks, of course, in 63 minutes. 
But it was extremely close. Ibn Eth wrote one little vagary of fate and the result might have been different. Um, there was one extremely dramatic incident during the match at 6-3-6-5-40-15. There was an out call after one of Wills's shots. The players shook hands because it was it was match point to, to Longland. People poured onto the court. Celebrations ensued. Well, not for Wills, obviously. Um, and then everyone realised that the call had actually come from the crowd. So one writer compared the false outcall to the false armistice announcement on November 7th, 1918, when millions of Americans re- reacted hysterically to a report that the world war had ended. Um, it distracted uh, Suzanne Longlin for a few moments, um, but she recovered to win. Um and John Tunis wrote that never in the long and luminous career of Suzanne Longden did she so justify her claim to greatness as in that moment. Wills would later say of it, she was such a fine match player, better than people realised. She had an astonishing amount of determination. Um, after the match, Longden was in quite a state of agitation. She was surrounded by adoring fans, flowers being thrown Wills, by contrast, was left alone and forgotten until, and when I said it could be a Hollywood script, I really meant it, <laughs> folks, because get this. She's there, she's depressed, she's sad, she's played her best tennis, everyone agreed. She could not possibly have done more. She's come over specifically to throw the gauntlet down to Suzanne Long and <laughs> she's played her best and she's lost. She's in a Stefanos Tsitsipas-style grief chamber <laughs> backstage think, thinking it's all for nothing. No good can possibly come of today. And then a young man, Freddie Moody, comes to her side to tell her how well she played. They later got married in 1929 and she became Helen Wills Moody. <laughs> and isn't that lovely? As Billie Jean King said uh, in our chat with her about Susan Longland, Helen Wills got a, got a husband out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way it's written. Uh, came to her side to tell her how well she played. They were married in 1929. I hope it really is a uh, a lovely romantic tale and not a sort of she was at her lowest ebb. You know when you know when you're lowest ebb and someone says just the slightest nice thing to you and you just feel like pathetically grovelingly grateful <laughs> and you you would marry them in that moment because they've shown you some kindness. Um I hope it wasn't that and it actually was a beautiful love story. I'm sure it was. Um and just a little uh, a footnote to all of that, it's often forgotten that Longland and Wills actually faced each other again on the same day after Wills has gone and met her husband. Um, they played one another on the doubles court and Longlin, uh, uh double-locked the padlocks on the grief chamber. Uh, she and partner D.D. Vlaston won 6486. Um, but it, again, uh, I can't emphasise enough uh, Helen Wills did get a husband out of the whole thing. So swings and roundabouts. Yes, a husband. And there was also a sense that although she lost the matches, she'd really shown something that a lot of people weren't expecting because she'd actually properly challenged Suzanne Longlin. Now, how many how many Wimbledons did she go on to win? Um, eight, I think. Yeah, yeah. eight. And then Martina Navratilova broke her record. 
Um, so some people saw Longland's win as complete incontrovertible evidence of her superiority and expected her to keep dominating tennis for years to come. But others who'd seen the match felt differently. Jean Barotra, for example, was one of the four musketeers of French tennis, recognised that Suzanne Longlen seemed to be in a sort of pain after the match. She'd been pushed to her upper outermost limits, which was something she wasn't used to having to do to win. And he described it as a heartbreaking victory. And Alison Danzig in the New York Times concluded that a myth had been shattered because Longlem was no longer the unrivaled queen of the tennis world. She was no longer beyond comparison, which she had been for her whole career. And Engelman sums this up by saying there was a feeling that Longlen had not so much triumphed as escaped. Now, unfortunately, we would never know how they would match up against each other in years to come because, because of events which happened at Wimbledon in 1926, they would never meet again. So many cliffhangers. And that si- that silence tells you how I was fe- feeling this morning when I was reading Matt's notes, and he t- and and he left under the next section still to complete this bit, and, and I was like, <laughs> but I need to know what happens. Ah, oh. anyway, fortunately, I have it all at hand now because he has filled it in, and it is is it was a drama. I mean, the whole. Wimbledon of 1926 from a Susan Longland perspective was a drama. It was Wimbledon's jubilee year. Um, It began with a ceremony on court. Uh, 34 living former champions given silver commemorative medals by King George V and Queen Mary. And Longland typically received the loudest cheers. So she's the most popular, obviously the favourite for the title, but Stuff is happening. Longland has just been told by the French Tennis Federation that her doubles partnership with Elizabeth Ryan, who she loved playing with, was not going to happen anymore. And that hit Longland really hard. They'd won 40 titles together, six at Wimbledon, but she went along with it. And they played one more match together at the opening ceremony, an exhibition set, and and they lost it 8-6. So that hadn't gone particularly well. Um... (laughs) And Longland was due to meet Ryan in her first match, which, uh, again, you know, not ideal. Um, She was pretty disturbed by it. So that was her opening doubles match. Now, in her singles, her opening singles match on the Tuesday, Longland beat Mary Brown 6-2-6-3. You're probably thinking, yeah, good, good start. That'll do. That'll do for the first round. But, well, that's not what she was used to she was described as listless um she'd conceded as many games in that one match as she had the the entire year before in winning the title and and she said she didn't feel very well uh did Longlin and Engelman wrote at the time that when she she left the tournament grounds after that win um she thought she only had one match the following day a doubles and she was planning accordingly for that, but a change was made and nobody informed Suzanne. The tournament referee, F.R. Burrow, added a 2pm singles match uh, for her. And that was scheduled because Queen Mary, who was a huge fan of Longlens since 1919, wanted to see her play in singles and the, the royal family had all made plans to attend. So the schedule was resi- revised. Um, published on the Wednesday in in the London newspapers, but Suzanne didn't know anything about it. 
So, <laughs> just imagine, can't you? Uh, there's nobody going to text her, is there? I mean, that, you know, that didn't happen back then. Um, so basically, in the past, the tournament secretary would would contact Longland each evening to let her know of the matches that she was playing the following day. But in 1926, the referee had been replaced. Hilliard, who was the referee during the match of the century against Wills, and with whom Longland had fallen out over his decision to award the point to Wills after the false outcall rather than a let, had been replaced by Dudley Larkham, didn't consider it his duty to inform Suzanne of the schedule changes. He felt that was the player's responsibility. So, what a drama. Um, (laughs) So, anyway... She wasn't happy and she immediately sent word to the All England Club that she couldn't possibly play at 2pm because she had a doctor's appointment at the time. She would instead be present for her match at 4.30. Could you just imagine? Uh, (laughs) Hello, I'm not playing at 2pm tomorrow, uh, so put me back for 4.30. And uh, and she just assumed that that would be honoured. The referee said he didn't receive that message. So it's uh, very much uh, he he said, she said stuff. Um, and I mean, it was said at the the time that there was no reason for Brignon not to inform Burrow. It's more likely that Burrow just ignored that message because they they didn't have the best relationship. Um, they and and that was generally the the, the situation. They loved that Longland made the event really financially profitable, but they didn't like the fact that she knew her worth in the sport, a sport which was dominated by men and governed by men. They were threatened by it. Engelman wrote that few of the men who dominated the sport doubted that someday Longland would have to be put in her place or the entire comfortable structure of national and international competition would just crumble. That fateful sometime and somewhere just happened to be in 1926 at the Jubilee Wimbledon. So two o'clock arrives, Longland's not there. Um, the Queen is waiting in her box uh, for her to come out. And so what are you going to do? She's not there. Several times the Queen was told the goddess would appear. Of course, that's what Longland was known as. The goddess would appear shortly. But these assurances were based upon wishful thinking and fervent prayer. She didn't turn up until 3.30. There was loads of commotion. And uh, Suzanne was questioned by a group of enraged and embarrassed officials. And a sobbing Longlin rushed hysterically to the locker room. She was in no fit state to play. Crikey. You know, I would have assumed that her opponents would have thought, you know, I'll have a walkover. That's that's fine. But apparently not. They were, they were all saying, no, we want to play the match. And you can't, you can't disqualify Susan Longlin. Um, <laughs> so they put out a, a statement. They said, owing to the disposition of Susan Longlin, it was found impossible to carry out today's programme. It is hoped that she will be well enough to play her matches tomorrow. So anyway, on the Thursday, centre court's packed and there is a massive upset. Longlin and her partner, Didi Vlasto, lost in the doubles to Ryan and Brown. They had three match points, didn't win any of them. Longlin gets called for a foot fault at one point in the match. So she's fuming. Um... It starts raining. The singles match that she was due to play then gets delayed till the Friday. She wins it, 6-2, 6-2, but she's complaining of pain in her arm. It's all happening. Um, and she gets booed when she's playing a mixed doubles with John Verotra. Um, these 
we understand are the result of press reports which has suggested that Suzanne had been discourteous in keeping the Queen waiting on the Wednesday. Um, the story had gone that Longland was faking it, that she'd been feigning injury and illness, um, and this is kind of the reputation she was getting, and the press were really pushing that, and the crowd were responding as a result of it. Now, the press reported a snubbing of Suzanne by Queen Mary after the doubles loss to the Americans, and on her way back to the locker room after the match, Suzanne had stood aside for a moment as the Queen made her exit. The Queen passed within a few feet of Longland, but appeared to ignore her. The press delighted in that, uh, played it all up, and that was what was reported. But in fact, there had been no snub. The Queen simply hadn't noticed Suzanne. Also, I don't think queens sort of just stop for a chat when they bump into someone in the corridor, do they? <laughs> Maybe they did back then. I do. I just no. I, don't, I think you're right. Um, but anyway, so everybody suddenly started to turn against Suzanne Longland. I mean, you know, this is not what we're what we're really used to. Um, her father was too ill to attend Wimbledon. That had a bad effect on Longland's mental and physical state she was supposed to play Claire Beckingham on the Monday and and there was a note in the program a precautionary note saying that this match would take place if she's well enough to play Um, on the Monday morning Suzanne decided that she couldn't play she couldn't do it and it was left to the secretary of Wimbledon Dudley Larkham to announce the withdrawal I've just spoken to Mademoiselle Longlin over the telephone and she tells me that although she started to come to Wimbledon, she was compelled to return to her hotel owing to severe pain she was suffering and therefore she retires from the singles championships. She's also asked me to inform the public how sorry she was not to be able to play and that she has done her best to carry on. On Tuesday, it was announced that her arm was still causing her pain and she therefore retired from the mixed doubles as well. She would never grace the courts at SW19 again. Makes me quite sad that that's how it ended mm. for her at Wimbledon. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Everything conspiring to bring her down, her own health and the establishment. Yeah. A, con- a concoction of two sort of, of natural and unnatural forces. It also to... sounds like you can almost become too big too famous as though it's just all too much and 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 you can't move do anything be unwell have anything go wrong without it becoming this massive deal mm. well it, it it's it's a pattern we're now familiar with aren't, aren't we it's it's much discussed in in discourse about about the press and particularly about the tabloid press you know how people are held up and elevated in order to be torn down. And that's sort of what this feels like. The press must have played an enormous role in, in creating her superstardom. As, as you say, Dave, there was no TV. For, for people to know who on earth she was, they had to find out some somehow and they weren't all lucky enough to get to go and see her on a local tennis court. They were here, they were hearing and reading her about, about her in the press mm. And she was she was torn down by those same forces and her own health, which is just doubly tragic. She did she did have a pro career. 
Matt. Yeah, but a very brief one. Um, mm. One of the reasons she never played again at Wimbledon after 1926, alongside all that drama that unfolded, was because shortly after that tournament, she decided to turn pro. She accepted an offer from an American promoter called Charles Pyle to play a series of exhibition matches in the US. And she was the first big tennis star to turn professional. And you might think, turning professional, great, that's wonderful. But actually, no, this was at the time an extremely, extremely controversial thing to do because the amateur status of sports people in those days was the foundation of sport, you know, amateur love. You're playing for the love of the sport rather than for money. To do so officially, to play for money officially, in the eyes of many, was unthinkable. But as David Berry says, the reality is that Longlen, other players top players of her age, like Bill Tilden, for example, were already entrepreneurial at receiving awards from their sport. This was what became known as shamateurism, where the appearance of an amateur ethic conceals a considerable amount of money making underneath. And Charles Longland, for all his faults, always ensured that Suzanne was well rewarded for her play. There were lots of ways that you could make money very generous expenses, having deals with manufacturing companies, interviews given for cash, all that kind of thing. So Longlen had been earning. That was how she was able to live her very exuberant lifestyle, travelling in limousines and, you know, living it up on the French Riviera. But after Wimbledon 1926, family is beginning to run out of funds. As we know, her father's health was very poor at this time, this was the time, if any, to cash in on her fame and on her talents. And she accepts this offer from Charles Powell of $75,000, a huge sum of money for a tour across the United States where she would play 38 matches against the same opponent, Mary Brown, who had also turned professional to be on this tour. It's like the 1926 European Super League. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so she signed this contract, and in doing so, she's immediately banished from the amateur tennis world. Her membership from the All England Club is revoked. But she seems content with her decision. She says, Becoming a professional to me is an escape from the bondage and slavery of amateur tennis. She said, Tennis had been great fun, but it had become, quote, too exacting. I've done my bit to build up the tennis of France and of the world. It's about time tennis did something for me. Now, there's debate to be had about whether the turning professional did do anything for her. Um, she earned quite a bit of money, but on a tennis level, it was really underwhelming. She won all of those 38 matches against Mary Brown. Penny for her thoughts, I think. <laughs> um, so, you know, Very often only losing a few games. It was, it, it was barely competitive but the travel was arduous and unrelenting going across america in railway carriages and because they weren't allowed to play at clubs that were affiliated with the united states lawn tennis association they had to carry their own collapsible tennis court around with them on this trip and pitch up in arenas that were 
used for basketball or hockey. Um, Collapsible tennis court. <laughs> it, it was an incredibly popular tour on the East Coast. Unfortunately, as they headed west, ticket sales dwindled. And frankly, this was proof that a professional tennis tour, certainly one, one run by Charles Pyle, couldn't rival Wimbledon or the US Nationals or the French Nationals in those days. So it was a little bit of a failure, to be honest, this, this little venture in, into professional tennis. Um, Pyle went on to work in American football as a promoter and Longlem went back to France where she worked for a Parisian fashion house and then ran a tennis school. Because of that decision to turn professional, she was never accepted back into the amateur tennis world. Uh, she went to Wimbledon as a spectator a few years later, but she wasn't allowed to sit in the player's box. Uh, she had to sit in the public stands with her friend Dorothea Chambers, who she'd beaten in that 1919 final, who'd also been disowned by the All England Club after she became Britain's first female professional coach. So they were shut out completely. And Longlin spent the decade after that supervising a tennis school for youngsters in France in order to teach them about the game that she had mastered. And only a decade, because um, on fourteenth on the fourteenth of May nineteen thirty eight, the, the French National Tennis School was opened with Longlin serving as director. Director, she had barely got going when she fell ill at her home in Paris in, in June of that year. So a month later, um, she complained of undue fatigue, um, but very quickly drew grew weaker and weaker. Um, and it turned out she was suffering from pernicious anemia. And 10 days later, she was reported to be much improved after receiving a blood transfusion. But two days after that, she deteriorated very rapidly again and died at home on Monday the 4th of July, 1938, at the age of 39. Um, her funeral was held on the 6th of July, so just a couple of days later. John Barotra spoke on behalf of the FFT. There were floral, floral tributes and wreaths in their hundreds, including from the USTA, the AELTC, and the King of Sweden. Um, and then, of course, is we now know in 1987 the the singles trophy was named after her at Roland Garros and the second court was named after her in 1997 she despite her success at the French championships what's now Roland Garros Longlin never competed at the Stade at Stade Roland Garros as it didn't become the site of the tournament until 1928 after her retirement from amateur tennis um, there's an avenue Suzanne Longlin um, in her hometown of Nice, which is next to the tennis club, which is a lovely thing. But gosh, it's a sad note to uh, to end the story on. Um, mm. I mean, we have some wonderful tributes that that were paid to her, sort of at the time and in the years in the years following. It makes me very happy that again that that stadium is named after her because just as a way to always have her in thought uh, at least the name and now that we've gone through all of this I, I feel like 
that will mean a lot more to me, really. Um, and, and as you say, some of these tributes, Elizabeth Ryan, I mentioned earlier, her doubles partner in 1941, said of Suzanne Longlin, she owned every kind of shot, plus a genius for knowing how and when to use them. Sure, she was a poser, a ham in the theatrical sense. She'd been spoiled by tremendous adulation from the time she was a kid, but she was the greatest woman player of them all. Never doubt that. Ted Tinling said women worshipped Suzanne for daring to enact their secret dreams. Alan Little wrote, at the end of the First World War, people wanted something different, particularly women who sought liberation. Suzanne helped to lead the way with her outstanding athleticism, daring dresses and sparkling charisma. The lifestyle of the 20s will never return, nor will the like of Suzanne. And just a couple of others I found. Engelman said, Others played tennis. Suzanne Longlen performed tennis. She danced tennis. She celebrated tennis. She laughed and she sang tennis. And there were times when she suffered tennis. To say that she played might bring a comparison with other players. And that would be to miss completely her singular virtuosity and spell. I thought that was a lovely tribute. And I found another one in a Sports Illustrated piece quoting a 17-year-old Monica Selesh calling Longlen a rock star long before there was rock. I love that 17-year-old Monica Selesh seemed to know so much about Suzanne Longlen. I remember those comparisons, you know, when when Selesh was around. They they sometimes interviewed her on TV and you, you could tell that she was inspired by a figure that wasn't from the recent history of the sport. And, and that started to come through actually now, I think. But. Wow. And then Selesh finished this quote by saying, and I love this, there was such anticipation before her matches. Everybody wondered about Suzanne, what she would wear, what she would look like. I would love to be like that. Everything is too simple in tennis now. Wouldn't it be neat to be a mystery woman, to be like Suzanne, out there but untouchable, unreachable. It would indeed be neat to be a mystery woman. <laughs> Another body part? <laughs> <laughs> She's running out. <laughs> Just s- straight on the forehead, I think, with that one. <laughs> mystery woman. Gosh, I'm going to have to get another dog. <laughs> wow. What a woman. I've just had the best time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult to know how to top it off, how to how to wrap it up, how to how to end the story of Suzanne Longland. There's which no one else like I her. I suppose I could I could find something corny to say about how the story isn't ended because all of women's tennis and women's sport is is her legacy to some extent. She she created a pathway, you know, that, the, the stuff uh, quite early on in this episode about how she changed the landscape landscape for the very perception of women, you know, of female athletes rather. You know, it was it was indelicate to be seen to be sweating. Um, and, you know, we things have loosened and changed, but women in athletic situations still battle with that now. The, the fact that, 
you know, athleticism isn't perceived to be feminine, that those two things are seen to be in opposition. It was, it was only a few years ago that we had strong is beautiful is the slogan for the the Women's Tennis Association, completely well-meaning. And I I know what they intended by that and I know it came from a good place. But who gives a damn if it's beautiful? Why are we why are we assessing women's tennis in terms of beauty? Why is that the currency? Um, and you know we've moved on a bit. That was a few years ago. I think we've moved on a bit from them, but we're we're a lot further down the road than we would be if it weren't for Suzanne Longlin. I think. And um, when I do get a dog and call it Susie, you'll all hear about it. And new, news of tattoos to follow. <laughs> Uh, in in later tennis podcast episodes, Mum, Dad, if you're listening, I am almost certainly joking. <laughs> um, Matt, I feel like there aren't there aren't enough words uh, for the achievement of your research this week. I feel like Engelman should should have a lovely quote about your research <laughs> to try and uh, beautifully summarize how how wonderful it's been if you've if you've enjoyed this it's it's because of Matt so um thanks very much Matt thanks to Bob and Marley our mascots for the week you you got a bumper episode Bob, Bob and Marley mm-hmm. and there are two of you so that's uh, that's probably well earned uh we still have our mascots for the week I've got Zeus David's got Rogue Matt's got Scouse or Mouse or good good one for Scouse or Mouse or today. A lot of a lot of lot of Matt praise. Um Billy Jean has got Billie Jean King. Um she slept the way the whole way through it. Um but I'm sure she enjoyed it. And Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer and top bloke. And we have shout outs, Matt. Lily Dennison. Alright, Lily. Hello, Lily. I like the name Lily. Yeah, thanks very much for your support. Jessica Thompson. Hello, Jessica Thompson. Hello, Jessica. I've got a friend called Jessica. <laughs> Do you like her? She's a friend. Yeah, she... <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Not as much as our Jessica, like, Jessica uh, Thompson. Jordan, like a love child of Jessica Pagula and Jordan Thompson. <laughs> Who's third, Matt? <laughs> third is James. So very appropriately for this episode, he is backer number 715 with that tattooed on his person. Yeah. Yeah. But is it James or is it Hamas? It could be the band James. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Imagine if it is. Oh, yeah. sit down. In fact, <laughs> di- no, sorry. I've I've become confused. <laughs> all been too much no uh they didn't do the song that i was about to quote them having done uh, but they they did have they've they've had a couple it could be the band james we'll never know let us know james if it's you or them uh okay this has been tennis relived the suzanne longland edition uh for our next tennis relived david can i reveal can i reveal where we're going oh yes we're going into David Law's 90s tennis time machine. Come on then, tell them about it, David. This is your moment. 1991. 
Jim Courier. Oh, can't wait. A week today. Got to do another show before then, but then I'm on it. It's the David Law Sweet Spot. It's 1991. It's Jim Courier. It's the final against Andre Agassi. David's been wanting to do this since episode one of Tennis Relived. Correct. And, uh, we had a major argument about finally not including it. <laughs> snuck it under the radar. Yes. With the help of a guest editor of which more next week. So that was our first Tennis Relived of Roland Garros 2021. Or the first edition of Roland Garros 2021. If we end up doing... <laughs> A whole other Roland Garros full <laughs> of tennis relived. Who, who, who knows? We take nothing for granted anymore. But anyway, it has genuinely been a great pleasure and a privilege and in hindsight a necessity um, to learn more about the life and career of Suzanne Longland. I'm ashamed not to have known much of that before now, but I'm very, very grateful that I know it now. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.